Hello everyone, and welcome back. How do you do all? Mortal is wondering, what is everyone's favorite type of tea? And I'm gonna tell you mine right now. Um, it is Earl Grey. Now, I had done some, uh, some tea drinking prior, but uh, I've got access to some really good tea now. Um, and, well, uh, I'm pretty thankful for it because uh, the the tea that I have is like just far and away better than what I was getting before. It's one of those things that if y'all ever heard of shrinkflation, there's that thing where there's inflation where the thing gets more expensive, and then there's shrinkflation where the thing gets it stays the same price, but it gets worse over time. I think tea has kind of gotten like that. Um, but uh, English breakfast was my go-to until I got my hands on some really good Earl Grey. Now, after that, I got some my hands on some really good Earl Bre uh, uh, really good English breakfast, which was also fantastic. But uh, Earl Grey, right up there at the top for me. I love it. Mm, that uh, bergamot sort of that bergamot oil treatment, good stuff. <sighs> let's see, let's see. Um, Big Mama says chai. Chai is an excellent one. Um, Louise says, I'm a coffee fanatic and don't drink tea except maybe twice a year. Yeah, honestly, for me, I I enjoyed coffee the most for a while. Um, never drank a lot of it. I try to keep my caffeine tolerance pretty low so that I can use it when I need it. Um, you know, if I need a cup of coffee, it's going to, like, it's going to be, it's going to have powerful effect. I don't need to dive into anything more strong. Um but, uh, yeah, <laughs> um, I, I got really into tea for a little while. I'm backing off a little bit and then getting back into it because I wanted to see how well my medication was going to work um, just on its own merits. But, yeah, I'm, I'm, on some, uh, I'm on some good meds right now, and uh, they are, they're definitely working. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm going to dive back into my tea. A little bit of tea. Y'all actually saw me drinking some on uh, yesterday, Wednesday. Louise says my coffee is a maintenance program. Yeah, I, I, that's where I didn't want to get to with it. I didn't want to get to the point where, like, I needed it badly. So, as much as I really enjoy... Um, honestly, with coffee, I really enjoy, like, sweet coffee, frankly. I'm not going to lie. Um, I, I don't drink really sort of uh, really tough guy coffee. I just like... Although tough guy coffee would be a funny name for a, a little a cute little tea shop, um, no the stuff I like tends to be pretty sweet. Um, and then with tea, I'm actually sort of now that I've got my hands on some good stuff, um, I a little bit a little bit of cream, a little bit of sugar, but not too much. <laughs> Let's see, David's tea, I gotcha. Well, I hope David makes some good tea. Uh, how's everybody doing today? Uh, Jade, Big Mama, Mortal. By the way, Mortal, thanks for coming back. Good to have you. Uh, Noxora, let's see. And also, like, Noxora, thanks for being back after a little while. Um, you, you've continued to come back, but uh, it's it's great to have you back. Uh, so glad to be able to catch this week's stream. Just caught up with last week's chapters yesterday. They were a doozy. Yes, they were indeed. Um, today is not going to go differently. It's going to be another doozy today. I'm going to tell you that right now. <laughs> Just so you have the heads up. Um, let's see. Jade, Mortal, Muffin Man, Louise, Sai. Hey, Sai. I hope your drive goes well. Good to have everybody here. Uh, Jezekay. Hello, Jezekay. Hello, hello. 
And, uh, y'all, thank you very much for joining me today. Um, if you joined me yesterday, fantastic. Uh, I'll be talking about that more in a few weeks once we've got a bit of a, bit of a, uh, back catalog. So, I'm not gonna talk about it. That's right. I'm not gonna talk about it very much. Uh, but I hope y'all come to hang out. Um, let's see. Today, everyone. Today, chapters 19, 20, and 21. Getting into part three of The Hunger Games, book one. Book one has been a doozy so far, as, uh, let's see, Naxara puts it. A doozy indeed. And uh, this week, we're getting into the first part of part three. The first, the first uh, episode of part three, which is The Victor, I believe. The Victor? Yes, indeed. So part one was the tributes, nine chapters there. Part two was the games, nine chapters there. And part three now, the victor. This means, I think, that we are entering the end game. Who do we have still on the board? We've got uh, some of the career tributes. Peta is out there somewhere. Katniss, of course. Thresh and Foxface. I believe that's the list for right now. Um, but uh, as of last week... Some important things happened. Let's let's do a bit of review, shall we? A spot of review. Chapters 16, 17, and 18. Chapter 16, Rue has unfortunately met her demise. The temporary ally that Katniss had found in the small tribute from District 11 is now over. The two of them together were able to uh, make a plan and carry it out to try and destroy the the supplies. The supplies that the, uh, the, the career tributes had sort of been hoarding near the lake, uh, near the start of the games. And they were able to make it happen. Rue provided the distraction. Katniss blew up the supplies using the very booby trap they were using to guard it. And... Then she spent a day trying to find Rue, but couldn't. The next day, she finally locates Rue, but just, unfortunately, a moment too late, as uh, a tribute from, I believe it was District 1, 1 or 2, um, kills Rue, and uh, Katniss quickly kills this uh, District 2 guy. Chapter 17 is a dark one, and in Chapter 18, um, Katniss sings Rue to sleep, and uh, doesn't bury Rue, but um, sort of covers her in flowers and sort of um, makes a good tribute um, to District 11. Sort of sends a, a message that you know this was this was a death that meant something to her. Um, and in, in honor of that, they send her a loaf of bread that must have been incredibly expensive, um, and, uh, certainly meant for Rue originally, but it sounds like they, it, it would seem that they authorized, uh, it to be sent to Katniss instead, now that Rue has passed. This means that Katniss's ally is gone, um, and... The very last thing, uh, as as Katniss is in this pretty hopeless spot, she's got this weapon, she's got certainly a drive to win. She intends to win in, um, uh, sort of in Rue's honor, in a way. But, 
That's when the rules change. Reaching the end of this chapter, one of the very last moments is this announcement comes over the, the system from Claudius Templesmith, the announcer for the games, and the announcement is that if two tributes are from the same uh, the same district, they can both win, which means that, uh, you know, Rue and Thresh might have had a chance at that. Um, there are a couple of uh, careers who might have a chance at that. But for Katniss, she knows Peta is still alive somewhere out there, and if the two of them win together, they can win together. Everyone, that's where we're at. Uh, Naxora, I'm glad you enjoyed Rue's the the lullaby. <laughs> that was um, that was one that I had actually forgotten to put together beforehand, um, and so I just I did it live. Uh, some of y'all might notice that the um, the structure of it was a little odd, and if you did, well, there you go. Um, so I, I improvised that one, but I'm glad it came off pretty well. Um, folks, chapters 19, 20, and 21, part one of our final, our episode one of our final part here. Just these three today, three next week, and three the week after that, and we are done with book one, which I think these books feel like they go faster and faster for me. I don't know if it's the same way for y'all, but these, these books absolutely feel like they just, they just hustle. So, thank you all for joining me. <laughs> Noxara says, uh, the improvisation was great. Well, I thank you for that. I appreciate it very much. Okay, everyone, sit back, have a little chill, and let's read. Chapter 19 I clap my hands over my mouth, but the sound has already escaped. The sky goes black, and I hear a chorus of frogs begin to sing. Stupid, I tell myself. What a stupid thing to do. I wait, frozen, for the woods to come alive with assailants. Then I remember, there's almost no one left. Peter, who's been wounded, is now my ally. Whatever doubts I've had about him dissipate, because if either of us took the other's life, we'd be pariahs when we returned to District 12. In fact, I know if I was watching, I would loathe any tribute who didn't immediately ally with their district partner. Besides, it just makes sense to protect each other. And in my case, being one of the star-crossed lovers from District 12, it's an absolute requirement if I want any more help from sympathetic sponsors. The star-crossed lovers. Peter must have been playing that angle all along. Why else would the game makers have made this unprecedented change in the rules? For two tributes to have a shot at winning, our romance must be so popular with the audience that condemning it would jeopardize the success of the games. No thanks to me. 
All I've done is manage not to kill Peter. But whatever he's done in the arena, he must have the audience convinced it was to keep me alive. Shaking his head to keep me from running to the cornucopia. Fighting Cato to let me escape. Even hooking up with the careers must have been a move to protect me. Peter, it turns out, has never been a danger to me. The thought makes me smile. I drop my hands and hold my face up to the moonlight so the cameras can be sure to catch it. So who's there left to be afraid of? Foxface? The boy tribute from her district is dead. She's operating alone at night, and her strategy has been to evade, not attack. I don't really think that even if she heard my voice, she would do anything but hope someone else would kill me. Then there's Thresh. All right, he's a distinct threat, but I haven't seen him, not once since the games began. I think about how Foxface grew alarmed when she heard a sound at the sight of the explosion. But she didn't turn to the woods, she turned to whatever lies across from it. To that area of the arena that drops off into I don't know what, I feel almost certain that the person she ran from was Thresh, and that is his domain. He'd never heard me from there, and even if he did, I'm too high up for someone his size to reach. So that leaves Cato and the girl from District 2, who are now surely celebrating the new rule. They're the only ones left who benefit from it besides Peta and myself. Do I run from them now on the chance that they heard me call Peta's name? No, I think. Let them come. Let them come with their night vision goggles and their heavy, branch-breaking bodies right into the range of my arrows. But I know they won't. If they didn't come in the daylight to my fire, they won't risk being caught in what might be another trap at night. When they come, it will be on their own terms, not because I've let them know my whereabouts. Stay put and get some sleep, Katniss, I instruct myself. Although I wish I could start tracking Peter now. Tomorrow, you'll find him. I do sleep, but in the morning I'm extra cautious, thinking that while the careers might hesitate to attack me in a tree, they're completely capable of setting an ambush for me. I make sure to fully prepare myself for the day, eating a big breakfast, securing my pack, readying my weapons, before I descend. But all seems peaceful and undisturbed on the ground. Today I'll have to be scrupulously careful. The careers will know I'm trying to locate Peta. They may well want to wait until I do so before they move in. If he's as badly wounded as Cato thinks, I'd be in the position of having to defend both of us without any assistance. But if he's that incapacitated, how has he managed to stay alive? And how on earth will I find him? I try to think of anything Peta has ever said that might give me an indication as to where he's hiding out, but nothing rings a bell. So I go back to the last moment I saw him sparkling in the sunlight yelling at me to run. Then Cato appeared, his sword drawn, and after I was gone, he wounded Peta. But how did Peta get away? Maybe he held out better against the tracker-jacker poison than Cato. Maybe that was the variable that allowed him to escape, but he'd been stung too, so how far could he have gotten? Stabbed and filled with venom? And how has he stayed alive all these days since? If the wound and the stingers haven't killed him, surely thirst must have taken him by now. And that's when I get my first clue to his whereabouts. He couldn't have survived without water. 
I know that from my first few days here. He must be hidden somewhere near a source. There's the lake, but I find that an unlikely option since they're so close to the career's base camp. A few spring-fed pools. But you'd really be a sitting duck at one of those. And the stream. The one that leads from the camp Rue and I made, all the way down near the lake and beyond. If he stuck to a stream, he could change his location and always be near water. He could walk in the current and erase his tracks. He might even be able to get a fish or two. Well, it's a place to start, anyway. To confuse my enemies' minds, I start a fire with plenty of green wood. Even if they think it's a ruse, I hope they'll decide I'm hidden somewhere near it. Well, in reality, I'll be tracking Peta. The sun burns off the morning haze almost immediately, and I can tell the day will be hotter than usual. The water's cool and pleasant on my bare feet as I head downstream. I'm tempted to call out Peta's name as I go, but I decide against it. I'll have to find him with my eyes and one good ear, or he'll have to find me. But he'll know I'll be looking, right? He won't have so low an opinion of me as to think I would ignore the new rule and keep to myself, would he? He's very hard to predict, which might be interesting under different circumstances, but at the moment only provides an extra obstacle. It doesn't take long to reach the spot where I peeled off to go to the careers camp. There's been no sign of PETA, but this doesn't surprise me. I've been up and down this stretch three times since the Tracker Jacker incident. If he were nearby, surely I'd have had some suspicion of it. The stream begins to curve to the left into a part of the woods that's new to me. Muddy banks covered in tangled water plants lead to large rocks that increase in size until I feel somewhat trapped. It will be no small matter to escape the stream now. Fighting off Cato or Thresh as I climbed over this rocky terrain... In fact, I've just about decided I'm on the wrong track entirely, that a wounded boy would be unable to navigate getting to and from this water source when I see a bloody streak going down the curve of a boulder. It's long dried now, but the smeary lines running side to side suggest someone, who perhaps was not fully in control of his mental faculties, tried to wipe it away. Hugging the rocks, I move slowly in the direction of the blood, searching for him. I find a few more blood stains one with a few bits of fabric glued to it, but no signs of life. I break down and say his name in a hushed voice. Peter? Peter? And a mockingjay lands on a scruffy tree and begins to mimic my tones, so I stop. I give up and climb back down to the stream, thinking he must have moved on, somewhere farther down. My foot has just broken the surface of the water when I hear a voice. You here to finish me off, sweetheart? I whip around. It's come from the left, so I can't pick it up very well, and the voice is hoarse and weak. Still, it must have been Peta. Who else in the arena would call me sweetheart? My eyes peruse the bank, but there's nothing. Just mud, the plants, the base of the rocks. Peter, I whisper. Where are you? There's no answer. Could I just have imagined it? No, I'm certain it was real, and very close at hand, too. Peter! I creep along the back. Well, don't step on me. I jump back. His voice was right under my feet. Still, there's nothing. And then his eyes open, 
unmistakably blue in the brown mud and green leaves. I gasp and am rewarded with a hint of white teeth as he laughs. It's the final word in camouflage. Forget chucking weights around. Peter should have gone into his private session with the game makers and painted himself into a tree, or a boulder, or a muddy bank full of weeds. Close your eyes again, I order. He does, and his mouth too, and completely disappears. Most of what I judge to be his body is actually under a layer of mud and plants. His face and arms are so artfully disguised as to be invisible. I kneel beside him. I guess all those hours of decorating cakes have paid off. Peter smiles. Eh, frosting. The final defense of the dying. You're not going to die, I tell him firmly. Says who? His voice is so ragged. Says me. We're on the same team now, you know, I tell him. His eyes open. Yeah, so I heard... Nice of you to find what's left of me. I pull out my water bottle and give him a drink. Did Kato caught you? I ask. Left leg. Up high, he answers. Let's get you into the stream. Wash you off so I can see what kind of wounds you got, I say. Lean down a minute first, he says. Need to tell you something. I lean over and put my good ear to his lips, which tickle as he whispers, Remember, we're madly in love, so it's all right to kiss me any time you feel like it. I jerk my head back, but end up laughing. Thanks, I'll keep that in mind. At least he's still able to joke around. When I start to help him to the stream, all the levity disappears. It's only two feet away, how hard can it be? Very hard, when I realize he's unable to move an inch on his own. He's so weak that the best he can do is not resist. I try to drag him, but despite the fact that I know he's doing all he can to keep quiet, sharp cries of pain escape him. The mud and plants seem to have imprisoned him, and I finally have to give a gigantic tug to break him free from their clutches. He's still two feet from the water, lying there, teeth gritted, tears cutting trails in the dirt on his face. Look, Peter, I'm going to roll you to the stream. It's shallow here, okay? I say. Excellent, he says. I crouch down beside him. No matter what happens, I tell myself, don't stop until he's in the water. On three, I say. One, two, three. I can only manage one full roll because I have to stop because of the horrible sound he's making. Now he's on the edge of the stream. Maybe this is better anyway. All right, change of plans. I'm not going to put you all the way in, I tell him. Besides, if I get him in, who knows if I'll ever be able to get him out again. No more rolling, he says. That's all done. Let me get you cleaned up. Keep an eye on the woods for me, okay? I say. It's hard to know where to start. He's so caked with mud and matted leaves, I can't see where his clothes are. If he's wearing clothes... The thought makes me hesitate for a moment, but then I plunge in. Naked bodies are no big deal in the arena, right? I've got two water bottles and Rue's water skin. I prop them up against the rocks in the stream so the two are always filling while that I pour the third over Peter's body. It takes a while, but I finally get rid of enough mud to find his clothes. I gently unzip his jacket, unbutton his shirt, and ease them off of him. 
His undershirt is so plastered with his wounds that I have to cut it away with my knife and drench him to work it loose. He's badly bruised, with a long burn across his chest and four tracker-jacker stings, if you count the one under his ear. But I feel a bit better. This much I can fix. I decide to take care of the upper body first to alleviate some pain before I tackle whatever damage Cato did to his leg. Since treating his wounds seems pointless when he's lying in what's become a mud puddle, I manage to prop him up against a boulder. He sits there, uncomplaining, while I wash away all the traces of dirt from his hair and skin. His flesh is very pale in the sunlight, and he no longer looks strong and stocky. I have to dig the stingers out of his tracker-jacker lumps, which causes him to wince, but the minute I apply the leaves, he sighs with relief. While he dries in the sun, I wash his filthy shirt and jacket and spread them over the boulders. Then I apply the burn cream to his chest. This is when I notice how hot his skin has become. The layer of mud and the bottles of water have disguised the fact he's burning with fever. I dig through my first aid kit that I got from the boy from District 1 and find some pills that reduce your temperature. My mother actually breaks down and buys these on occasion when her home remedies fail. Swallow these, I tell him, and he obediently takes the medicine. You must be hungry. Not really. It's funny, I've not been hungry for days, says Peter. In fact, when I offer him some grusling, he wrinkles his nose at it and turns away. That's when I know how sick he is. Peter, we need to get some food in you, I insist. It'll just come right back up, he says. The best I can do to get him to eat is to have a few dried bits of apple. Thanks. I'm, I'm much better, really. Can I sleep now, Katniss? He asks. Soon, I promise. I need to have a look at your leg first. Trying to be as gentle as I can, I remove his boots, his socks, and then very slowly inch his pants off of him. I can see the tear that Cato's sword made in the fabric over his thigh, but it in no way prepares me for what lies underneath. The deep, inflamed gash oozing both blood and pus. The swelling of the leg, and worst of all, the smell of festering flesh. I want to run away disappear into the woods like I did on that day when they brought the burn victim into our house. Go and hunt while my mother and Prim attend to what I have neither the skill nor the courage to face. But there's no one here but me. I try to capture the calm demeanor my mother assumes when handling particularly bad cases. Pretty awful. Ah, says Peter. He's watching me closely. So-so? I shrug like it's no big deal. You should see some of the people they bring my mother from the mines. I refrain from saying how I usually clear out of the house whenever she's treating anything worse than a cold. Come to think of it, I don't even much like to be around coughing. First thing is to clean it well. I've left on Peter's undershorts because they're not in bad shape, and I don't want to have to pull them over the swollen thigh, and... All right, maybe the idea of him being naked makes me uncomfortable. That's another thing about my mother and Prim. Nakedness has no effect on them. It gives them no cause for embarrassment. Ironically, at this point in the games, my little sister would be of far more use to Peter than I am. I scoot my square of plastic under him so I can wash down the rest of him. 
With each bottle I pour over him, the worse the wound looks. The rest of his lower body has fared pretty well. Just one tracker jacker sting and a few small burns I treat quickly. But that gash on his leg. What on earth can I do for that? Why don't we give it some air and then... I trail off. And then you'll patch me up, says Peter. He looks almost sorry for me. As if he knows how lost I am. That's right, I say. In the meantime, you eat these. I put a few dried pear halves in his hand and go back to the stream to wash the rest of his clothes. When they're flattened out and drying, I examine the contents of the first aid kit. It's pretty basic stuff. Bandages, fever pills, medicine to calm stomachs. Nothing of the caliber I'll need to treat PETA. We're going to have to experiment some, I admit. I know the Tracker Jacker leaves draw-out infections, so I'll start those. Within minutes of pressing the handful of chewed-up green leaves on this wound, pus begins running down the side of his leg. I tell myself this is a good thing and bite the inside of my cheek hard because my breakfast is threatening to make a reappearance. Katniss, Peter says. I meet his eyes, knowing my face must be some shade of green. He mouths the words... What about that kiss? I burst out laughing because the whole thing is so revolting I can't stand it. Is something wrong? He asks a little too innocently. I... I'm no good at this. I'm not my mother. No idea what I'm doing and I hate pus, I say. Ugh. I allow myself to let out a groan as I rinse away the first round of leaves and apply the second. Ugh. How do you hunt? He asks. Trust me, killing things is much easier than this. Although, for all I know, I am killing you. Can you speed it up a little? He asks. No. Shut up and eat your pears, I say. After three applications and what seems like a bucket of pus, the wounds do look better. Now that the swelling has gone down, I can see how deep Cato's sword cut. Right down to the bone. What's next, Dr. Everdeen? He asks. Maybe I'll put some of the burn ointment on it. I think it helps with infection anyway. And wrap it up? I say. I do, and the whole thing seems a lot more manageable, covered in clean white cotton. Although against the sterile bandage, the hem of his undershorts looks filthy and teeming with contagion. I pull out Rue's backpack. Here, cover yourself with this. I'll wash your shorts. I, I don't care if you see me, says Peter. You're just like the rest of my family. I care, all right? I turn my back and look at the stream until the undershorts splash into the current. He must be feeling a bit better if he can throw. You know... You're kind of squeamish for such a lethal person, says Peter, as I beat the shorts clean between two rocks. I wish I'd have let you give Hamish a shower after all. I wrinkled my nose at the memory. What he sent you so far? Not a thing, says Peter. Then there's a pause as it hits him. Why? Did you get something? 
Born medicine, I say, almost sheepishly. Oh, and some bread. Always knew that you were his favourite, says Peter. Please, you can't stand being in the same room with me, I say. That's because you're just alike, mutters Peter. I ignore it, though, because this really isn't the time for me to be insulting Haymitch, which is my first impulse. I let Peter doze off while his clothes dry out, but by late afternoon, I don't dare wait any longer. I gently shake his shoulder. Peter, we've got to go now. Go? He seems confused. Go where? Away from here. Downstream, maybe. Somewhere that we can hide you till we're stronger, I say. I help him dress, leaving his feet bare so he can walk in the water and pull him upright. His face drains of color the moment he puts weight on his leg. Come on, you can do this. But he can't. Not for long, anyway. We make it about fifty yards downstream, with him propped against my shoulder, and I can tell he's going to black out. I sit him on the bank, push his head between his knees, and pat his back awkwardly as I survey the area. Of course, I'd love to get him up in a tree, but that's not going to happen. It could be worse, though. Some of the rocks form small cave-like structures. I set my sights on one about twenty yards above the stream. When Pete is able to stand, I half-guide, half-carry him up into the cave. Really, I'd like to look around for a better place, but this one will have to do because my ally is shot. Paper-white, panting, and even though it's just cooling off, he's shivering. I cover the floor of the cave with a layer of pine needles, unroll my sleeping bag, and tuck him into it. I get a couple of pills and some water into him when he's not noticing, but he refuses to eat even the fruit. He just sort of lies there, his eyes trained on my face as I build a blind out of vines to conceal the mouth of the cave. The result is unsatisfactory. An animal might not question it, but a human would see hands had manufactured it quickly enough. I tear it down in frustration. Cottoners, he says. I go over to him and brush the hair back from his eyes. Thanks for finding me. You would have found me if you could, I say. His forehead is burning up. It's like the medicine's having no effect at all. Suddenly, out of nowhere, I'm scared he's going to die. Yeah. Look, if I don't make it back, he begins. Don't talk like that. I didn't drain all that pus for nothing, I say. I know, but in case, just in case I don't, he tries to continue. No, Peter, I don't even want to discuss it, I say, placing my fingers on his lips to quiet him. But I, he insists, impulsively I lean forward and kiss him, stopping his words. This is probably overdue anyway, since he's right. We are supposed to be madly in love. It's the first time I've ever kissed a boy, which should make some sort of impression, I guess, but all I can register is how unnaturally hot his lips are from the fever. I break away and pull the edge of the sleeping bag up around him. You're not going to die. I forbid it, all right? All right, he whispers. I step out into the cool evening air just as the parachute floats down from the sky. My fingers quickly undo the tie, hoping for some real medicine to treat Peter's leg. Instead, I find a pot of hot broth 
Hamish couldn't be sending a clearer message. One kiss equals one pot of broth. I can almost hear his snarl. You're supposed to be in love, sweetheart! The boy's dying give me something to work with! And he's right. If I want to keep Peter alive, I've got to give the audience something more to care about. Star-crossed lovers desperate to get home together. Two hearts beating as one. Romance. Never having been in love, this is going to be a real trick. I think of my parents. The way my father never failed to bring her gifts from the woods. The way my mother's face would light up at the sound of his boots at the door. The way she almost stopped living when he died. Peter, I say, trying for the special tone that my mother only used with my father. He's dozed off again, but I kiss him awake, which seems to startle him. Then he smiles as if he'd be happy to lie there gazing at me forever. He's great at this stuff. I hold up the pot. Peter, look what I made you sent you. There we are, folks. The end of our first chapter of the evening. How y'all feeling about it? Mm, how do you feel? Hey, Solderfish, I see you. Love from a friend. Is the friend you, Solderfish? <laughs> I hope you're doing well. Uh, good to have you in here. Good to see you. Um, yeah, I hope you're doing great. Thank you very much for the resub. Uh, yeah, I mean, 20 months, that's a, that's a big number. That's a big one. The friend is me. Okay, I figured as much. Yeah, Solderfish, I tried to. I, I tried to go for it. I tried to, I tried to add a little bit of production every single, every single new iteration, um, which I've done on Wednesdays as well. Uh, I have, I've absolutely, um, my, my new project over on Wednesdays. Um, I, I hope y'all are, <laughs> I hope y'all are willing to try something new because I'm going to be talking about it a lot. Uh, Night School at Vesperal Academy. Uh, if y'all are wondering about the next. Tabletop RPG Adventure we're having, Episode 1, is up both on YouTube and on Spotify already. So, you can find that. Uh, the title of that show, if you're looking for it as a podcast, is Side Cannons! And if you're looking for it elsewhere, um, if you're looking for it on YouTube, you'll just be able to find it uh, on the Sidecar Stories YouTube. Um, yesterday's section was absolutely amazing. Orly Rose is excited about it, and I'm really, really stoked because, yeah, I don't know if I've ever had... Uh, I've only had a couple of projects start well from episode one. Certainly not Harry Potter. Um, even uh, the Percy Jackson bo books, a lot of them got off on sort of a bad foot. But I think this book started really well. We had a great first, first episode. And then this new campaign, I'm really excited for. We don't have any of the complex stuff. Uh, none of the, none of the uh, chat commands. Uh, none of the sort of like uh, needing to read the wiki about things. Just get in there and let me know what y'all want to do. And I just sort of make sense of uh, what makes sort of... Uh, what is the clearest option for the character? Um... We have got two characters, um, and you'll have to find out what happens to them episode one. Um, but, uh, yeah, you can dive in there. And if you want to know where this sort of season is going to end up overall, uh, I would like you to imagine a sort of creepy Hogwarts, if you will. Um, and, 
uh, kind of a, a, a little bit of slice of life, uh, a little bit of classic uh, swords and sorcery adventure, but um, it is a secret school for young vampires, ghosts, and lichen in the realms of Recidus. So, I hope you are excited. We're out in the frontier now, um, and uh, yeah, I'm trying to keep the, the episodes a little bit shorter, a little bit more condensed. Um, do head on over there and uh, check it out, because I am really, really excited about it. We had a fantastic first episode. Um, remember, that is Side Cannons, if you're looking for it as a podcast. If you're looking for it um, as uh, a video, you can find that over on the YouTube channel. Fantastic. Uh, lovely. Everyone, thank you so very much for watching. It's been delightful so far. Let's talk about a bit of a chatterbreak question, shall we? Let's talk about it. Chapter 19. Um, this one is... Uh, boy, I mean, this is... This is one of the biggest things to happen in the games in decades, I have to assume, right? This rule change is a big, big deal. Um... This change that allows two people from the same district to win together um, if, they, if they're together at the end. And clearly, this has not been an accident. Um, this is not something that they would just sort of, uh, you know, throw at the games. And unless Cato is, you know, really putting the moves on his nameless companion, um, then it must be that this is the pairing that has sort of made that interesting for the games. You know, that there's that bit of drama, that bit of romance. It sounds like Peta has been doing a solid job of playing up this romance. So solid, indeed, that the game makers must consider it dangerous not to allow it to proceed. You know, if they, if they, uh, if, if they sort of squash this little, this little romance here, it seems like they've got this idea that maybe their, their ratings will tank or they, they won't be very popular. And, you know, they're, they're just here to make good games, right? entertaining, bloodthirsty, uh, games that are going to hold the attention of bored people with nothing better to do in the capital. So, this romance angle must be playing up nicely. Now, here's the question. My chatterbreak question for all of you is, how well is Katniss going to be able to keep up that little act? How well is Katniss going to be able to keep up this act? Is she going to pull it off? Well, we shall see, because we've got two more chapters tonight. All right, uh, let's dive into our next chapter here. Um, a bit of review in this chapter. There has been a rule change. We are launching into part three, The Victor, uh, chapter 19. Um, Katniss spends some time getting her wits about her, reacting to this new rule, and decides she's going to go hunt down Peta um, and and ally with him, uh, because it just makes sense. Um not only that, but she's she maintains her very analytical position, which is something I want y'all to sort of keep in mind. Uh, as I've told you about some some questions, I want y'all to keep track of as we proceed through questions about this character, her motivations, etc. And uh, she continues this very analytical sort of mindset, right? She doesn't think about it in terms of like, oh man, it, I would do anything to see Peta again. She thinks about it in terms of, well, if I win, but I kill Peta, or even if I don't try to ally with Peta right away, I'll be a pariah when I get back to District 12. Um, and for those of you who are not aware, a pariah is, um, I want to say it's an idea that originates in India, if I'm not mistaken, but I could be absolutely mistaken, and there's so much, like, 
uh, imported culture that has been uh, sort of dumped on India uh, over the over the centuries. So I I cannot be sure it is uh, you know something that they would own, but um, uh, a pariah just the idea of like um, uh, basically someone who is an outcast. Um, I think the I think it might have come from like groups of dogs. Basically, when there's a there are a bunch of dogs around and one of them is just shunned from the pack for some reason. Um, I uh, again not sure about the sort of origins of that phrase, but the idea of a pariah is just someone who is an outcast. They are shunned. They are rejected by the community. Um, and so she says, yeah, that you know, just analytically, this is where I would be at um, if I reject being an ally with Peta. The community will reject me even if I win when I get home. That's where we're at. She finds Peta, but Peta is in bad shape. Um, exhausted, feverish, not eating because he can't. Um, too weak to move even the, the few yards down to the stream. Uh, an expert having camouflaged himself perfectly, and yet it's not going to do him any good if he dies just from an infection. Um... So she tries to take care of him. Um, he sort of reminds her to play up this romance angle, and she decides that, you know what? Yes, that's going to be good. Uh, she even gets kind of a signal from Haymitch, um, who sends a, a pot of hot broth uh, for for Peta to help his recovery after she, uh, she sort of plays up that angle. There we go, folks. That is where we're at. Um, and uh, she's just got this gift. She knows what she needs to do. She needs to play up this angle and win the games for both of them. I'm going to duck over into chat here. That's our review, but uh, I'm going to say hi to chat real quick and then move on to our next chapter. Mortal says, hey, Sam, I don't know if you saw this, so I'll post it again. I love these books. I use your podcast to help me study successful literature and help me write my own book. Oh, fantastic, Mortal. Yeah, I'm, I mean, that is one of the things that I hope people can get out of this is, you know, not just not just reading it and enjoying it, but also maybe learning a, little, a thing or two about it. So, Mortal, I'm glad to have you here. Um... And uh, Orly Rose says, we are chattering away tonight. That is fantastic, Orly Rose. Um, I, I definitely don't try to, like, push people toward it, but there's always that, like, the numbers side of things, the algorithms that look at my stuff and say, do people like this? They're looking at, like, they're looking at engagement all over the place, and engagement is just, like, who who's, you know, uh, who's liking stuff? Who's following what? Um, who's commenting on stuff? So believe it or not, the the chattery, the chatteriness is actually super helpful to me here and on Instagram and Twitter, all over the place. So I thank you for that. <laughs> I appreciate it. It's a it's a an easy and free way to help me out. Frankly, um, even though it is very very silly, you and I can agree on this. But uh, yeah, no, I I love it. Um, Orly Rose says, I said this earlier, but I can't figure out why they would make a new rule. But I think it's because this will make Katniss vulnerable, and they think it'll get her killed, or they'll, uh, or she will have to watch him die. I think they're sneakier than we realize, pulling on the heartstrings. Oh, Orly Rose, I think you are right on the money there. They're not there to protect these two tributes. They're not here to make life easy for Katniss and Peeta. They absolutely, I mean, they, they track these people every single day. They know what state Peeta is in, and they may well know that Katniss, with a bow... Uh, with nothing to hold her back and only a few uh, tri tributes remaining, she'll just hunt them all down and it'll be a very quiet game until the end as she just sort of picks them off one by one. Now, that might be exciting for moments. There's this like day-by-day -day ratings thing that they're apparently 
focusing on. So yes, absolutely, Orly Rose. I think it is much more about um, giving Katniss something else to focus on, something else that that will require her attention, um, that will keep her from being just the obvious, like, oh yeah, well, th that's it. Katniss wins the games. All we have to do is wait now. That's where we're at, folks. Everyone, I hope you are enjoying. I certainly am, and I hope you have a fantastic evening. Now, we roll on into Chapter 20. Getting the broth into Pita takes an hour of coaxing, begging, threatening, and yes, kissing, but finally, sip by sip, he empties the pot. I let him drift off to sleep then and attend to my own needs, wolfing down a supper of grusling and roots while I watch the daily report in the sky. No new casualties. Still, Pita and I have given the audience a fairly interesting day. Hopefully, the game makers will allow us a peaceful night. I automatically look around for a good tree to nest in before I realize that's over, at least for a while. I can't very well leave Peter unguarded on the ground. I left the scene of his hiding place on the bank of the stream untouched. How could I conceal it? And we're a scant fifty yards downstream. I put on my glasses, place my weapons in readiness, and settle down to keep watch. The temperature drops rapidly, and soon I'm chilled to the bone. Eventually, I give in and slide into the sleeping bag with Peter. It's toasty warm, and I snuggle down gratefully until I realize it's more than warm. It's overly hot because the bag is reflecting back his fever. I check his forehead and find it burning and dry. I don't know what to do. Leave him in the bag and hope the excess heat breaks the fever? Take him out and hope the night air cools him off? I end up just dampening a strip of bandage and placing it on his forehead. It seems weak but I'm afraid to do anything too drastic. I spend the night half-sitting, half-lying next to Peta, refreshing the bandage, trying not to dwell on the fact that by teaming up with him, I've made myself far more vulnerable than when I was alone. Tethered to the ground, on guard, with a very sick person to take care of. But I knew he was injured. I still came after him. I'm still going to have to trust that whatever instinct sent me to find him was a good one. When the sky turns rosy, I notice the sheen of sweat on Peter's lip and discover the fever has broken. He's not back to normal, but it's come down a few degrees. Last night, when I was gathering vines, I came upon a bush of ruse berries. I strip off the fruit and mash it up in the broth pot with cold water. Peter's struggling to get up when I reach the cave. I woke up and you were gone, he says. I was worried about you. I have to laugh as I ease him back down. <laughs> you were worried about me. Have you taken a look at yourself lately? I thought Kato and Clove might have found you. They like to hunt at night, he says, still serious. Clove? Which one's that? I ask. 
It's the girl from District 2. She's still alive, right? He says. Yep, it's just them and us and Thresh and Foxface. That's what I nicknamed the girl from Five. How do you feel? Better than yesterday. This is an enormous improvement over the mud. Clean clothes and medicine, a sleeping bag. And you. Oh, right, the whole romance thing. I reach out to touch his cheek and he catches my hand and presses it against his lips. I remember my father doing this very thing to my mother, and I wonder where Peter picked it up. Surely not from his father and the witch. No more kisses for you till you've eaten, I say. We get him up, propped against the wall, and he obediently swallows the spoonfuls of berry mush I feed him. He refuses the grusling again, though. You didn't sleep, Peter says. I'm all right, I say, but the truth is I'm exhausted. Get some sleep now. I'll keep watch. I'll wake you up if anything happens. I hesitate. Gartness, you cannot stay up forever. He's got a point there. I'll have to sleep eventually, and probably better to do it now when he seems relatively alert and we have daylight on our side. All right, I say, but just for a few hours. Then you wake me up. It's too warm for the sleeping bag now. I smooth it out on the cave floor and lie down, one hand on my loaded bow in case I have to shoot at a moment's notice. Peter sits behind me, leaned against the wall, his bad legs stretched out in front of him, his eyes trained on the world outside. Go to sleep, he says softly. His hand brushes the loose strands of my hair from my forehead. Unlike the staged kisses and caresses so far, this gesture seems natural and comforting. I don't want him to stop, and he doesn't. He's still stroking my hair when I fall asleep. Too long. I sleep too long. I know it from the moment I open my eyes that we're into the afternoon. Peter's right beside me, his position unchanged. I sit up, feeling somehow defensive, but better rested than I've been in days. Peter, you were supposed to wake me up after a couple of hours. For what? Nothing's going on here, he says. Besides, I like to watch you sleep. You don't scowl as much. It improves your look a lot. This, of course, brings on a scowl that makes him grin. That's when I notice how dry his lips are. I test his cheek. He's hot as a coal stove. He claims he's been drinking some of the water, but the containers still feel full to me. I give him a few more fever pills and stand over him while he drinks first one, then a second quart of water. Then I tend to his minor wounds. The burns, the stings, which are showing improvement. I steal myself and unwrap the leg. My heart drops into my stomach. It's worse. Much worse. There's no more pus in evidence, but the swelling is increased and the tight, shiny skin is inflamed. Then I see the red streak starting to crawl up his leg. Blood poisoning. Unchecked, it will kill him for sure. My chewed-up leaves and ointment won't make a dent in it. We need strong anti-infection drugs from the capital. I can't imagine the cost of such potential medicine. If Haymitch pooled every donation from every sponsor, would he have enough? I doubt it. 
Gifts go up in price the longer the games continue. What buys a full meal on day one buys a cracker on day twelve. And the kind of medicine PETA needs will have been at a premium from the beginning. Well, there's more swelling, but the pus is gone, I say in an unsteady voice. I know what blood poisoning is, Katniss, says Peter. Even if my mother isn't a healer. You're just going to have to outlast the others, Peter. We'll cure it back at the capital when we win, I say. It's it's a good plan, he says. But I feel like this is mostly for my benefit. You have to eat. Keep your strength up. I'm going to make you some soup, I say. Don't, don't light a fire. It's not worth it. We'll see, I say. As I take the pot down to the stream, I'm struck as to how brutally hot it is. I swear the game makers are progressively ratcheting up the temperature in the daytime and sending it plummeting at night. The heat of the sun-baked stones by the stream gives me an idea, though. Maybe I won't need to set a fire. I settle down on a big flat rock halfway between the stream and the cave. After purifying half a pot of water, I place it in direct sunlight and add several egg-sized hot stones to the water. I'm the first to admit I'm not much of a cook, but since soup is mainly tossing everything in a pot and waiting, it's one of my better dishes. I mince grusling until it's practically mush and mash up some of Rue's roots. Fortunately, they've both been roasted already, so they mostly just need to be heated up. Already, between the sunlight on the rocks, the water's warm. I put in the meat and the roots, swap in fresh rocks, and go find something green to spice it up a little. Before long, I discover a tuft of chives growing at the base of some rocks. Perfect. I chop them very fine and add them to the pot. Switch out the rocks again, put on the lid, and let the whole thing stew. I've seen very few signs of game around, but I don't feel comfortable leaving Peter alone while I hunt. So I rig a half-dozen snares and hope I get lucky. I wonder about the other tributes. How they're managing now that their main source of food has been blown up. At least three of them, Cato, Chloe, and Foxface, have been relying on it. Probably not Thresh, though. I've got a feeling he must share some of Rue's knowledge on how to feed yourself from the earth. Are they fighting each other? Looking for us? Maybe one of them has located us and is just waiting for the right moment to attack. The idea sends me back to the cave. Peter's stretched out on top of the sleeping bag in the shade of the rocks. Although he brightens up a bit when I come in, it's clear he feels miserable. I put cool cloths on his head, but they warm up almost as soon as they touch his skin. Do you want anything? I ask. No, thank you. Wait. Yes. Tell me a story. A story? What about? I say. I'm not one for storytelling. It's kind of like singing. But once in a while, Prim wheedles one out of me. Something. Something happy. Tell me about about the happiest day you can remember, says Peter. Something between a sigh and a huff of exasperation leaves my mouth. A happy story? This will require a lot more effort than the soup. I rack my brain for good memories. Most of them involve Gale and me out hunting, and somehow I don't think these will play well with either Peta or the audience. That makes... just... prim. 
Did I ever tell you how I got Prim's goat? I ask. Peter shakes his head and looks at me expectantly. So, I begin. But carefully, because my words are going out all over Panem. And while people have no doubt put two and two together, that I hunt illegally, I don't want to hurt Gale or Greasy Say or the Butcher or even the Peacekeepers back home, who are my customers, by publicly announcing they've been breaking the law too. Here's the real story of how I got the money for Prim's goat, lady. It was a Friday evening, the day before Prim's tenth birthday in late May. As soon as school ended, Gale and I hit the woods because I wanted to get enough to trade for a present for Prim. Maybe some new clothes or a dress or a hairbrush. Our snares had done well enough and the woods were flush with greens, but this was really no more than our average Friday night haul. I was disappointed as we headed back, even though Gale had said we'd be sure to do better tomorrow. We were resting a moment by a stream when we saw him. A young buck, probably a yearling by his size. His antlers were just growing in, still small and coated in velvet, poised to run but unsure of us, unfamiliar with humans. Beautiful. Less beautiful, perhaps, when the two arrows caught him, one in the neck, the other one in the chest. Gale and I had shot at the same time. The buck tried to run, but stumbled, and Gale's knife slit its throat before he knew what had happened. Momentarily, I'd felt a pang at killing something so fresh and innocent. And then my stomach rumbled at the thought of all that fresh and innocent meat. A deer. Gale and I have only brought down three in all. The first one, a doe that had injured her leg somehow. It almost didn't count. But we knew from that experience not to go dragging the carcass into the hob. It had caused chaos with people bidding on parts and actually trying to hack off pieces themselves. Greasy Say had intervened and sent us out with our deer to the butcher, but not before it had been badly damaged. Hunks of meat taken, the hide riddled with holes. Although everybody paid up fairly, it had lowered the value of the kill. This time, we waited until dark fell and slipped under a hole in the fence close to the butcher. Even though we were known hunters, it wouldn't have been good to go carrying a 150-pound deer through the streets of District 12 in broad daylight, like we were rubbing in the officials' faces. The butcher, a short, chunky woman named Ruba, came to the back door when we knocked. You don't haggle with Ruba. She gives you one price, which you can take or leave. But it's a fair price. We took her offer on the deer, and she threw in a couple of venison steaks that we could pick up after the butchering. Even with the money divided in two, neither Gale nor I had held so much money at one time in our lives. We decided to keep it secret and surprise our families with the meat and money at the end of the next day. This is where I really got the money for the goat, but I told Peta I sold an old silver locket of my mother's. That can't hurt anyone. Then I pick up the story in the late afternoon of Prim's birthday. Gail and I went to the market on the square so that I could buy dress materials. As I was running my fingers over a length of thick blue cotton cloth, something caught my eye. There's an old man who keeps a small herd of goats on the other side of the seam. I don't know his real name. Everyone just calls him the Goat Man. His joints are swollen and twisted in painful angles, and he's got a hacking cough that proves he spent years in the mines. But he's lucky. Somewhere along the way, he saved up enough money for these goats, and now he's got something to do in his old age besides slowly starve to death. 
He's filthy and impatient, but the goats are clean, and their milk is rich if you can afford it. One of the goats, a white one with black patches, was lying down in a cart. It was easy to see why. Something, probably a dog, had mauled her shoulder and infection had set in. It was bad. The goat man had to hold her up to milk her. But I thought I knew someone who could fix it. Gail, I whispered. I want that goat for Prim. Owning a nanny goat can change your life in District 12. The animals can live off of almost anything. The meadow is a perfect feeding place, and they give four quarts of milk a day. To drink, to make cheese, to sell. It's not even against the law. She's all pretty bad, says Gail. We better take a closer look. We went over and bought a cup of milk to share, then stood over the goat as if to look idly curious. You let her be, says the man. Just looking, says Gail. Well, look fast. She goes to the butcher soon. Hardly anyone will buy her milk and then only pay half price, says the man. Uh, what's the butcher giving for her? I asked. The man shrugged. Hang around and see. I turned and saw Ruba coming across the square toward us. Lucky thing that you showed up, says the goat man when she arrived. Girl's got her eye on your goat. Uh, not if she's already spoken for, I said carelessly. Ruba looked up and down and then frowned at the goat. She's not. Look at the shoulder. Bet you half the carcass will be too rotten for even sausage. What? says the goat man. We had a deal. Had a deal on an animal with a few teeth marks, not that thing. Sell it to the girl, she's stupid enough to take her, says Ruba. As she marched off, I caught her wink. The goat man was mad, but he still wanted that goat off his hands. It took us half an hour to agree on the price. Quite a crowd had gathered around by then to hand out opinions. It was an excellent deal if the goat lived. I'd have been robbed if she had died. People took sides in the argument, but I got the goat. Gale offered to carry her. I think he wanted to see the look on Prim's face as much as I did. In a moment of complete giddiness, I bought a pink ribbon and tied it around her neck. Then we hurried back to my house. You should have seen Prim's reaction when we walked in with that goat. Remember, this is a girl who wept to save that awful old cat buttercup. She was so excited, she started crying and laughing all at once. My mother was less sure, seeing the injury. But the pair of them went to work on it, grinding up herbs and coaxing bruise down the animal's throat. They sound like you, says Peter. I'd almost forgotten he was there. Oh no, Peter. They work magic. That thing couldn't have died if it had tried, I say. But then I bite my tongue. Realizing what that must sound like to Peta, who's dying in my incompetent hands. Don't worry. I'm not trying. Finish the story. Well, that's it. Only I remember that night, Prem insisted on sleeping with Lady on a blanket next to the fire. Just before they drifted off, the goat licked her cheek like it was giving her a good night kiss or something. I say. It was already mad about her. Was it still wearing that pink ribbon? He asks. 
I think so. Why? Just trying to get a picture, he says thoughtfully. I can see why that day made you happy. Well, I knew that goat would be a little gold mine, I say. Yes, of course, I was referring to that. Not the lasting joy you gave your sister that you loved so much that you took her place in the reaping, says Peter dryly. That goat has paid for itself several times over, I say in a superior tone. It wouldn't dare do anything else after you saved its life. I intend to do the same thing. Oh, really? What did you cost me again? I ask. A lot of trouble. Don't worry. You're going to get it all back, he says. You're not making any sense. I test his forehead. The fever is going nowhere but up. You're a little cooler, though. The sound of the trumpets startles me. I'm on my feet at the mouth of the cave in a flash, not wanting to miss a syllable. It's my new best friend, Claudius Templesmith, and as I expected, he's inviting us to a feast. Well, we're not that hungry, and I actually wave his offer away in indifference when he says, No! Hold on! Some of you may have already been declining my invitation, but this is no ordinary feast. Each of you needs something desperately. I do need something desperately. Something to heal Peter's leg. Each of you will find that something in a backpack marked with your district number at the cornucopia at dawn. Think hard about refusing to show up. For some of you, this will be your last chance. There's nothing else. Just Claudius Templesmith's words hanging in the air. I jump as Peter grips my shoulder from behind. No, he says. You're not risking your life for me. Who said that I was? I say. So you're not going? He asks. Of course I'm not going. Do give me some credit. Do you think I'd go running straight into some free-for-all against Cato and Clove and Thresh? Don't be stupid. I say, helping him back to bed. I'll let them fight it out. We'll see who's in the sky tomorrow night and work out a plan from there. You're such a bad liar, Katniss. <laughs> I don't know how you've survived this long. He begins to mimic me. I knew that would be a little goat gold mine. You're a little cooler, though. Of course I'm not going. He shakes his head. Never gamble at cards. You'll, you'll lose your last coin. <laughs> Anger flushes my face. All right, I'm going, and you can't stop me. I can follow you. At least part way. I may not make it to the cornucopia, but if I'm yelling your name, I bet someone can find me. And then I'll be dead for sure. You won't get a hundred yards from here on that leg. Then I'll drag myself. You go, and I'm going to go too. He's just stubborn enough, and maybe just strong enough to do it. Come howling after me in the woods. Even if a tribute doesn't find him, something else might. 
He can't defend himself. I'd probably have to wall him up in the cave just to go myself. And who knows what that kind of exertion would do to him. What am I supposed to do? Stay here and watch you die. He must know that's not an option. That the audience would hate me. And frankly, I would hate myself too if I didn't even try. I won't die. I promise. I promise. If you promise not to go. We're at something of a stalemate. I know I can't argue him out of this one, so I don't try. I pretend reluctantly to go along. Then you have to do what I say. Drink your water, wake me up when I tell you to, and eat every bite of soup no matter how disgusting it is. I snap at him. Agreed. Is it ready? He says. Wait here. The night air's gone cold enough, though the sun is still up. I'm right about the game makers messing with the temperature. I wonder if the thing someone desperately needs is a good blanket. The soup is still nice and warm in its iron pot. It actually doesn't taste too bad. Peter eats it without complaint, even scraping out the pot to show his enthusiasm. He rambles on about how delicious it is, which should be encouraging if you don't know what fever does to people. He's like listening to Haymitch before the alcohol has soaked him into incoherence. I give him another dose of fever medicine before he goes off of his head completely. As I go down to the stream to wash up, all I can think is that he's going to die if I don't get to that feast. I'll keep him going for a day or two, and then the infection will reach his heart or his brain or his lungs, and he'll be gone, and I'll be here all alone again, waiting for the others. I'm so lost in thought, I almost miss the parachute, even though it floats right by me. Then I spring after it, yanking it from the water, tearing off the silver fabric to retrieve the vial. Haymitch has done it. He's gotten the medicine. I don't know how, persuaded some gaggle of romantic fools to sell their jewels, and I can save PETA. It's such a tiny vial, though. It must be very strong stuff to cure someone as ill as PETA. A ripple of doubt runs through me. I uncork the vial and take a deep sniff. My spirits fall at the sickly sweet scent. Just to be sure, I place a drop on the tip of my tongue. There's no question, it's sleep syrup. It's a common medicine in District 12. Cheap, as medicine goes, but very addictive. Almost everyone's had a dose at one time or another. We have a bottle back at home. My mother gives it to hysterical patients to knock them out, to stitch them up if they've got a bad wound or to quiet their minds long enough for someone in pain to get through the night. It only takes a little. A vial this size could knock Pete out for a full day, but what good is that? I'm so furious I'm about to throw Haymitch's last offering into the stream when it hits me. A full day. That's more than I need. I mash up a handful of berries so the taste won't be as noticeable, and add some mint leaves for good measure. Then I head back into the cave. I've brought you a treat. I've found a new patch of berries a little further upstream. Peter opens his mouth for the first bite without hesitation. He swallows and then frowns slightly. They're very sweet. Yes, they're sugar berries. My mother makes jam from them. Haven't you ever had them before? 
I say, poking the next spoonful into his mouth. No, he says, almost puzzled. But it tastes familiar. Sugar bodies. Well, you can't get them in the market much. They only grow in the wild, I say. Another mouthful goes down. Just one more to go. That is sweet as set up, he says, taking a last spoonful. Set up. His eyes widen as he realizes the truth. I clamp my hand over his mouth and nose hard, trying to force him to swallow instead of spit it out. He tries to make himself vomit the stuff up, but it's too late. He's already losing consciousness. Even before he fades away, I can see in his eyes what I've done is unforgivable. I sit back on my heels and look at him with a mixture of sadness and satisfaction. A stray berry stains his chin and I wipe it away. Who can't lie, Peter? I say, even though I know he can't hear me. It doesn't matter. The rest of Pan Am can. Well, folks, some trouble. Some trouble, frankly, of the sort that it would seem the game makers, like Orly Rose has pointed out, probably knew would happen for Katniss. This is the, exactly the sort of trouble they meant for Katniss. The trouble of having to take care of someone, because clearly she can take care of herself. But they have to keep it entertaining. They have to keep it action-packed. So that's what they've done. They have given Katniss someone important to take care of, and when she's not able to bring him fully back to health, they offer something that no one can refuse. Each group, it seems, desperately needs something. Um, we don't know what the other groups need, maybe a warm blanket because they're freezing out there at night, but we know... They need medicine if they're going to help PETA. If, if PETA's going to make it the next few days even, they need this medicine because he's already got blood poisoning. They need, like, powerful, powerful anti-infection medication so he doesn't go, you know, more septic than he already has um, and uh, he can start to get a little bit better. But that sort of thing is too expensive. At this point, way more expensive. Even if Haymitch was able to put together all of the sponsors they'd had for the whole games, not a chance. It's going to have to come directly from the game makers themselves. And it would seem that it is in the form of this feast, right? This, uh, this idea where they'll call everyone to the middle in the hopes that uh, it will coax out some of the hiding people and uh, bring together enough conflict to keep the next day of games interesting. That is where we're at. Um, here's a question, our chatter break question, right? We like, to, uh, we like to talk about the characters, we like to talk about the sort of format of everything, we like to talk about the, um, uh, the structure of these as well, and uh, you know, we've already, we've talked about the characters a little bit, how is Katniss going to be able to um, keep up this ruse? Is she going to do a great job at it? Is she going to sort of, <laughs> is she going to succeed at keeping up this ruse of, oh, the star-crossed lovers from District 12? 
That's one Chatterbrick question. But this next one is more about form than anything else. Um, this one we're going to step away a little bit from the characters and uh, talk about sort of the formatting for a moment as I'm going to leave you with this Chatterbrick question. And then I'm going to go into my five-minute break and be back for Chapter 21. <laughs> Thank you very much for the reminders, mortal. And here in the sidecar. Thank you both very much. Um, here's our question. This book is broken into three sections. Each section has nine chapters, um, and uh, by just sort of coincidence, it has been very convenient for three chapters to be the length of each one of our episodes. So that means uh, we are, you know, we're just starting, uh, 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 just starting part three here, right? Part one, the tributes. Part two, the games. Part three, the victor. Now, we've still got four different districts in the games. There are still six fighters present in the arena. Why is it that the author might have chosen to break off and start part three with last chapter, chapter 19? Chapter 19 was the first one we read today. We just read chapter 20 and we're about to head into chapter 21. But why do we think that the author has chosen to broke up, chosen to break up the book like this? There is our question. And it is time for my break. Uh, Y'all discuss it in chat. We'll talk about it when we come back. And then we will read our third and final chapter of the evening, chapter 21. As uh, Katniss is going to try and make a break for it. See you in five. Bye-bye. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Fantastic to have you here, as always. Asaf, hello! Excuse me, wait. A as in acorn. Asaf. Asaf, hello. <laughs> Awaken people from China checking in. Hello, hello, hello. Great to have you here, Asaf, again. Um, good to have you back. A as in acorn. I don't know why. Hey, can I tell you something? Um, I remember uh, sort of like th names and things about people's names so much better here in chat than I do in person. Maybe it's just seeing them, I suppose. I don't know. That must be part of it, seeing them written out. That must be it. But, everyone, welcome back. We are just coming back from our break. Um, we have read two chapters today already, and chapter three commences imminently. But we're talking about why that is. Why is it that um, the, the book was structured this way? Um, and it sounds like we had a bit of confusion. Um, chapter, uh, excuse me, the, the book, as I mentioned, is in three parts. Part two ended last week. Chapter 18 was the last chapter of part two, and so everything that we've read today um, has been the beginning of part three. A little strange, right? Yeah, Memnet says hashtag visual learner. Um, perhaps. I've always considered myself kind of an, uh, an auditory learner, but I've also been wrong before, and I've never had it really, like, seriously analyzed. Um... But, uh, yeah, it's an interesting question. Uh, Memnite, thank you very much for reiterating it here. Um, why did the author decide to start part three where she did, right? Chapters 19. Ch chapter 19 was the first chapter of uh, part three here. Um, and uh, just to sort of give you all an indication, chapter 18, the very last chapter of part two, ended with the proclamation that... Um, two different people can win the the games if they're both from the same district and then chapter 19 obviously uh the very first chapter of part three katniss uh, begins her hunt for Peta and eventually finds him so 
why there? Why start there? Some interesting notes over here. Uh, Mortal says it's most likely due to the fact that Katniss has had her first hugely impactful death with Rue. And we start to see her say that she may not win, but hopefully she will. Um, Orly Rose says she definitely writes from the perspective of action. Cliffhangers, I suspect she might be setting something up with the pacing that breaks, um, uh, pacing and breaks that makes more sense as events go on. But it also makes sense that, uh, like, it's broken up with intermissions slash commercial breaks like a TV show. <laughs> Both of those, very good observations. Um, let's see, who else has jumped in on this one? Loverly Random says, I never considered this. But briefly thinking about it now... We know the possibility exists for both Katniss and Peeta to win, given the rule change. The title of this third section being The Victor, and starting here, could at least, in part, uh, leave the reader guessing as to whether they'll make it, both of them, or not. Um, yes, indeed. I like this. I like this quite a bit. Um, the uh, this, this idea that really it is, like, we are in the phase where we start to think about The Victor, right? Um... We have thought about it a little bit before, but a lot of the discussion, except, you know, a little bit with Rue, um, although even there, so I, I guess I'll start from the beginning there. Um, this discussion about, like, who the victor is going to be, who's going to win, they talk about it a little bit before the games, you know, Peta and Katniss talk about it a little bit. They, there's the occasional mention of just the obvious bits, like, you know, if we help each other, eventually, like, one of us is going to have to die. But even when Katniss and uh, is sort of thinking about that when she allies with Rue, she says explicitly, like, I just decided not to think about that right now, right? So we, we've been intentionally avoiding those moments of, of considering the end. All, it, what, it's not important who wins, right? There's no, there's no sense in it's like strategizing who's going to win. The only important thing is staying alive right now, tonight, for another night. That's the only important thing. Um, and so it hasn't... It hasn't, uh, shoot, what's my conjugation here? Born? It hasn't born much, uh, thought. It doesn't bear thinking. Uh, Gwendog says, oh shoot, I'm way behind. What's the rule change? Well, uh, that is where we will sort of, uh, get into a bit of our, um, review. A pretty quick one, frankly. The rule change at the end of part two was huge, it, it, momentous. If two, um, uh, if two tributes are from the same district, they both can, uh, they both can win the games together. Which means that, you know, Katniss and Thresh can't both win the games together. But in all the previous games, there's just been one winner. However, in this one, Thresh and Rue could have made it out together. Um, uh, the, the, there are two career districts, both from the same district, um, and of course, Katniss and Peeta. They are both from the same district, and so they don't have to be, you know, they don't have to worry about being at odds with one another anymore. They can ally and not worry about it, so, because they can both make it out of the games alive. Um, and so that was at the end of part two, so the, the very last thing from last week. Uh, and then, of course, we get into it today. Our quick review is Katniss looks for Peta because they can now be allies. She finds Peta, but Peta is in terrible shape and badly, badly needs medicine. Um, he reminds her, and she tries to uh, participate as much as she can. He reminds her to um, sort of keep up the act, as it were, of these star-crossed lovers. Um, gets a little bit in... Um, uh, gets gets uh, a little bit of help from from uh, Haymitch. Couldn't find it for a second. A little bit of help from Haymitch and um, 
then at the end, uh, there's this offer on the table. A feast, which is their, the name in the games for when they sort of provide something, often food, but not always, uh, that all of the tributes need in an effort to sort of force them to come together and meet in the middle and fight. Um, turns out, right now, it's not food, but each district needs something desperately, and this is going to be their last chance. Katniss knows this is the this is not only it's going to be medicine um, for for Peta, but it's the only way she's going to get it because it's too expensive for Haymitch to send uh, with help from sponsors. Not a chance it's going to happen. So she has to go. Peta insists that she she shouldn't, and uh, says, you know, basically, I'll I'll sabotage you if you try to go. And so Haymitch sends sleeping syrup. It's gonna, it, it is just enough to knock Peta out for about a day, which is all the time that uh, Katniss is going to need. If he's passed out in a cave somewhere and everyone else is heading in toward this feast, he's as safe as he can be, and Katniss must get this medicine. So that is where we are. Um, uh, Memnite, uh, indeed. Rue and uh, Thresh are not from a career district, but that, that's what I mean. They, the two of them, could have made it out together. Um, the career, there's a pair from the career district that could have made it out together, but still can. They're still, they're still up and running. Um, and then Katniss and uh, Peta are the, those are the the three pairs that had a chance. Then Rue died, and so now if Thresh is going to make it out, he's going to make it out alone. Um, and then, uh, yeah, there's this pair of careers from, I want to say it's District 4, because I think, I think, I think one, I think a girl from one has died, both from one may have died, and then she definitely killed the boy from two, and so I think it's just District 4 that are left, the careers from four. All right, here we go, folks. Are y'all ready for our next chapter? Is Katniss going to be able to get the medicine? Let's find out. Before nightfall, I gather rocks and do my best to camouflage the opening of the cave. It's a slow and arduous process, but after a lot of sweating and shifting things around, I'm pretty pleased with my work. The cave now appears to be part of a larger pile of rocks, like so many in the vicinity. I can still crawl in through a small hole in the opening, but it's an undetectable covering from the outside. That's good, because I need to share that sleeping bag again tonight. Also, if I don't make it back from the feast, Peter will be hidden, but not entirely imprisoned. Although I doubt he can hang on much longer without medicine. If I die at the feast, District 12 isn't likely to have a victor. I make a meal out of the smaller, bonier fish that inhabit the stream down here, fill every water container and purify it and clean my weapons. I have nine arrows left in all. I debate leaving the knife with Peter so he'll have some protection while I'm gone, but there's really no point. He was right about camouflage being his final defense. But I still might have use for the knife. Who knows what I'll encounter. Here are some things I'm fairly certain of. That at least Cato, Clove, and Thresh will be on hand when the feast starts. I'm not sure about Foxface, since direct confrontation isn't really her style or her forte. She's even smaller than I am, and unarmed unless she's picked up some weapons recently. 
She'll probably be hanging around somewhere nearby, seeing what she can scavenge. But the other three, I'm going to have my hands full. My ability to kill at a distance is my greatest asset, but I know I'll have to go right out into the thick of things to get that backpack. The one with the number 12 on it that Claudius Templesmith mentioned. I watch the sky, hoping for one less opponent at dawn, but nobody appears overnight. Tomorrow there will be faces up there. Feasts always result in fatalities. I crawl into the cave, secure my glasses, and curl up next to Peta. Luckily, I had that good long sleep today. I have to stay awake. I don't really think anyone will attack our cave tonight, but I can't risk missing the dawn. So cold. So bitterly cold tonight. As if the game makers have sent an infusion of frozen air across the arena, which may be exactly what they've done. I lay next to Peta in the bag, trying to absorb every bit of heat. It's strange to be so physically close to someone who's so distant. Peter might as well be back in the capital, or in District 12, or on the moon right now. He'd be no harder to reach. I've never felt lonelier since the games began. Just accept it will be a bad night, I tell myself. I try not to, but I can't help thinking of my mother and Prim. Wondering if they'll sleep a wink tonight. At this late stage in the games, with an important event like a feast, school will probably be cancelled. My family can either watch on that static-filled old clunker of a television at home, or join the crowds in the square to watch on the big clear screens. They'll have privacy at home, but support in the square. People will give them a kind word, a bit of food if they can spare it. I wonder if the baker has sought them out especially now that Peta and I are a team and made good on his promise to keep my sister's belly full. Spirits must be running high in District 12. We so rarely have anyone to root for at this point in the games. Surely people are excited about Peta and me, especially now that we're together. If I close my eyes, I can imagine their shouts at the screens urging us on. I see their faces. Greasy Say and Madge and even the peacekeepers who buy my meat cheering for us. And Gale. I know him. He won't be shouting and cheering, but he'll be watching every moment, every twist and turn, and willing me to come home. I wonder if he's hoping that Peta makes it as well. Gale's not my boyfriend, but would he be if I opened that door? He talked about us running away together. Was that just a practical calculation of our chances of survival away from the district? Or something more? I wonder what he makes of all this kissing. Through a crack in the rocks, I watched the moon cross the sky. At what I judge to be about three hours before dawn, I begin final preparations. I'm careful to leave Peta with water and the medical kit right beside him. Nothing else will be of much use if I don't return. And even these would only prolong his life a short time. After some debate, I strip him of his jacket and zip it up over my own. He doesn't need it. Not now in the sleeping bag with his fever, and during the day, if I'm not there to remove it, he'll be roasting in it. My hands are already stiff from cold, so I take Rue's spare pair of socks, cut holes for my fingers and thumbs, and pull them on. It helps, anyway. I fill her small pack with some food, a water bottle, and bandages, tuck the knife in my belt, get my bow and arrows. 
I'm about to leave when I remember the importance of sustaining the star-crossed lover routine, and I lean over and give Peta a long, lingering kiss. I imagine the teary sighs emanating from the capital and pretend to brush away a tear of my own. Then I squeeze through the opening to the rocks, out into the night. My breath makes small white clouds as it hits the air. It's as cold as a November night at home, one where I've slipped into the woods, lantern in hand, to join Gale at some prearranged place, where we'll sit bundled together, sipping herb tea from metal flasks wrapped in quilting, hoping game will pass our way as the morning comes on. Oh, Gale. If only you had my back now. I move as fast as I dare. The glasses are quite remarkable, but I still sorely miss having the use of my left ear. I don't know what the explosion did, but it damaged something deep and irreparable. Never mind. If I get home, I'll be so stinking rich, I'll be able to pay someone to do my hearing. The woods always look different at night. Even with the glasses, everything has an unfamiliar slant to it. As if the daytime trees and flowers and stones had gone to bed and sent slightly more ominous versions of themselves to take their places. I don't try anything tricky like taking a new route. I make my way back up the stream and follow the same path back to Rue's hiding place near the lake. Along the way, I see no sign of another tribute. Not a puff of breath, not a quiver of a branch. Either I'm the first to arrive or the others positioned themselves last night. There's still more than an hour, maybe two, when I wriggle into the underbrush and wait for the blood to begin flowing. I chew a few mint leaves. My stomach isn't up for much more. Thank goodness I've got Peta's jacket as well as my own. If not, I'd be forced to move around to stay warm. The sky turns a misty morning gray, and still there's no sign of the other tributes. It's not surprising, really. Everyone has distinguished themselves either by strength or deadliness or cunning. Do they suppose, I wonder, that I've got Peta with me? I doubt Foxface and Thresh even know he's been wounded. All the better if they think he's covering me while I go in for the backpack. But where is it? The arena has lightened enough for me to remove my glasses. I can hear the morning birds singing. Isn't it time? For a second, I'm panicked that I'm at the wrong location, but no, I'm certain Claudius Templesmith specifying the cornucopia. And there it is, and here I am, so where's my feast? Just as the first ray of sun glints off the gold cornucopia, there's a disturbance in the plain. The ground before the mouth of the horn splits in two, and a round table with a snowy white cloth rises into the arena. On the table sits four backpacks, two large black ones with the numbers 2 and 11, a medium-sized green one with the number 5, and a tiny orange one. Really, I could carry it around my wrist. That must be marked with a 12. The table is just clicked into place when a figure darts out of the cornucopia, snags the green backpack, and speeds off. Foxface! Leave it to her to come up with such a clever and risky idea. The rest of us are still poised around the plane, sizing it up. She's got her backpack. She's got us trapped, too, because no one wants to chase her down. Not while their own pack sits so vulnerable on the table. Foxface must have purposely left the other packs alone, knowing that to steal one without her number would definitely bring on a pursuer. That should have been my strategy. 
By the time I've worked through the emotions of surprise, admiration, anger, jealousy, and frustration, I'm watching the reddish mane of her hair disappear into the trees, well out of shooting range. <sighs> I'm always dreading the others, but maybe Foxface is the real opponent here. She's cost me time, too, because by now it's clear I must get to the table next. Anyone who beats me to it will easily scoop up my pack and be gone. Without hesitation, I sprint for the table. I can sense the emergence of danger before I see it. Fortunately, the first knife comes whizzing in on my right side so I can hear it, and I'm able to deflect it with my bow. I turn, drawing back the bowstring, and send an arrow straight at Clove's heart. She turns just enough to avoid a fatal hit, but the point punctures her upper left arm. Unfortunately, she throws with her right, but it's enough to slow her down for a few moments, having to pull the arrow from her arm, taking the severity of the wound. I keep moving, positioning the next arrow automatically as only someone who has hunted for years can do. I'm at the table now, my fingers closing over the tiny orange backpack. My hand slips between the straps and I yank it up onto my arm. It's really too small to fit on any other part of my anatomy. And I'm turning to fire again when the second knife catches me in the forehead. It slices above my right eyebrow, opening a gash that sends a gush running down my face, blinding my eye, filling my mouth with the sharp, metallic taste of my own blood. I stagger backward, but still manage to send my readied arrow in the general direction of my assailant. I know as it leaves my hands, it will miss. And then Clove slams into me, knocking me flat on my back, pinning my shoulders to the ground with her knees. This is it, I think. And I hope for Prim's sake that it will be fast. But Clove means to savor the moment. Even feels she has time. No doubt Cato is somewhere nearby, guarding her, waiting for Thresh and possibly Peta. Where's your boyfriend, District 12? Still hanging on? She asks. Well, as long as we're talking, I'm alive. He's out there now, hunting Cato. I snarl at her. Then I scream at the top of my lungs. Peter! Clove jams her fist into my windpipe, very effectively cutting off my voice. But her head is whipping from side to side, and I know for a moment she's at least considering I'm telling the truth. Since no Peter appears to save me, she turns back to me. Liar, she says with a grin. He's nearly dead. Cato knows where he cut him. You've probably got him strapped up in a tree somewhere where you try to keep his little heart going. What's in that little backpack? Is that medicine for lover boy? It's too bad he'll never get it. Clove opens her jacket. It's lined with an impressive array of knives. She carefully selects an almost dainty-looking number with a cruel, curved blade. I promised Cato if he let me have you, I'd give the audience a good show. I'm struggling now in an effort to unseat her, but it's no use. She's too heavy, and her lock on me is too tight. Forget it, District 12. We're going to kill you. Just like we did with that pathetic little ally. What was her name? The one who hopped around in the trees? Rue? <laughs> well, first Rue, then you. And then I think we're just going to let nature take care of lover, boy. How does that sound? Now, where to start? She carelessly wipes away the blood from my wound with her jacket sleeve. For a moment, she surveys my face, tilting it from side to side as if it's a block of wood. She's deciding exactly what pattern to carve on it. I attempt to bite her hand, but she grabs the hair on the back of my head, forcing me back to the ground. 
I think, she almost purrs, I think we'll start with your mouth. I clamp my teeth together as she teasingly traces the outline of my lips with the tip of the blade. I won't close my eyes. The comment about Rue has me filled with fury. Enough fury to think I'll die with some dignity. As my last act of defiance, I will stare her down as long as I can, which will probably not be an extended period of time, but I will stare her down. I will not cry out. I will die in my own small way, undefeated. Yeah, I don't think you're going to have much use for your lips anymore. Want to blow lover boy a one last kiss? She asks. I work up a mouthful of blood and saliva and spit it right in her face. She flushes with rage. All right, then, let's get started. I brace myself for the agony that's sure to follow, but as I feel the tip open its first cut at my lip, some great form yanks Clove from my body, and then she's screaming. I'm too stunned at first, too unable to process what has happened. Has Peter somehow come to my rescue? Has the game maker sent in some kind of wild animal to add to the fun? Has a hovercraft inexplicably plucked her into the air? But when I push myself up onto my numb arms, I see it's none of the above. Clove is dangling a foot off the ground, imprisoned in Thresh's arms. I let out a gasp, seeing him like that, towering over me, holding Clove like a ragdoll. I remember him as big, but he seems more massive, more powerful than even I can recall. If anything, he seems to have gained weight in the arena. He flips Clove around and flings her to the ground. When he shouts, I jump, never having heard him speak above a mutter. What did you do to that little girl? You kill her! Clove is scrambling backwards on all fours like a frantic insect, too shocked to even call for Cato. No, no, it wasn't me. You said her name. I heard you. Did you kill her? Another thought brings a fresh wave of rage to his features. You cut her up like you were going to cut up this girl here. Oh, no. Clove sees the stone about the size of a small loaf of bread in Thresh's hand, and loses it. Kato! Kato! She screeches. Clove! I hear Kato's answer, but he's too far away. I can tell that much. What was he doing? Trying to get Foxface or Peta? Or had he been lying in wait for Thresh and just badly misjudged his location? Thresh brings the rock down hard against Clove's temple. It's not bleeding, but I can see the dent in her skull. And I know she's a goner. There's still life in her now, though, and the rapid rise and fall of her chest, the low moan escaping her lips. When Thresh whirls around on me, the rock raised, I know it's no good to run. And my bow is empty, the last loaded arrow having gone in Clove's direction. I'm trapped in the glare of his strange golden-brown eyes. What did she mean? Bauru being your ally. I, uh, we, we teamed up. Blew up the supplies. I tried to save her. I did. But he got there first. District one. Maybe if he knows I helped Rue, he won't choose some slow, sadistic end for me. Then you killed him, he demands. Yes, I killed him. And buried her in flowers. And I sang her to sleep. Tears spring into my eyes. 
the tension, the fight goes out of me at the memory, and I'm overwhelmed by Rue, and the pain in my head, and my fear of Thresh, and the moaning of the dying girl a few feet away. To sleep, Thresh says gruffly. To death. I sang until she died. Your district, they sent me some bread. My hand reaches up, but not for an arrow that I know I'll never reach, just to wipe my nose. Do it fast. Okay, Thresh. Conflicting emotions cross Thresh's face. He lowers the rock and points at me, almost accusingly. Just this one time, I'll let you go. For the little girl. You and me. We're even, then. No more old. You understand? I nod, because I do understand. About owing. About hating it. I understand that if Thresh wins, he'll have to go back and face a district that has already broken all the rules to thank me, and that he is breaking the rules to thank me, too. And I understand that, for the moment, Thresh is not going to smash in my skull. Clove! Cato's voice is much closer now. I can tell by the pain in it that he sees her on the ground. You better run now, fire girl, says Thresh. I don't need to be told twice. I flip over and my feet dip into the hard-packed earth as I run from Thresh and Clove in the sound of Cato's voice. Only when I reach the woods do I turn back for an instant. Thresh and both large backpacks are vanishing over the edge of the plain into the area I've never seen. Cato kneels beside Clove. Spear in hand, begging her to stay with him. In a moment, he will realize it's futile. She can't be saved. I crash into the trees, repeatedly wiping away the blood that's pouring into my eye, fleeing like the wild, wounded creature I am. After a few minutes, I hear the cannon, and I know that Clove has died. Cato will soon be on one of our trails, either Thresh's or mine. I'm seized with terror, weak from my head wound, shaking. I load an arrow, but Cato can throw that spear almost as far as I can shoot. Only one thing calms me down. Thresh has Cato's backpack, containing the one thing he needs desperately. If I had to bet, Cato is headed out after Thresh, not me. Still, I don't slow down when I reach the water. I plunge right in, boots still on, and flounder downstream. I pull off Rue's socks that I've been using for gloves and press them to my forehead, trying to staunch the flow of blood, but they're soaked in minutes. Somehow, I make it back to the cave. I squeeze through the rocks. In the dappled light, I pull the little orange backpack from my arm, cut open the clasp, and dump the contents on the ground. One slim box containing one hypodermic needle. Without hesitating, I jam the needle into Peter's arm and slowly press down the plunger. My hands go to my head and then drop into my lap. The last thing I remember seeing is an exquisitely beautiful green and silver moth landing on the curve of my wrist.
I saw some of y'all pick that out. Mortal, uh, Mortal was right. It was indeed uh, the boy from District One, not Two, which makes me think that Cato and uh, Clove might be the the tributes from Two. I can't remember if they're from Two or Four. I always get this confused. I can remember the names okay, but I definitely can't remember the districts very well. It's taken me long enough even to remember that <laughs> that Thresh is from Eleven. Um, Louis says, "Oh man, I hope the moth is explained next week." Yeah, that's an interesting little detail, right? An interesting sort of like moment of beauty that has not happened often, but it has happened on occasion, right? These little moments of beauty, um, I mean, it's hard to call um, uh, uh, Katniss's uh, sort of Katniss's final tribute to Rue. Hard to call that like a random moment of beauty because Katniss did it herself, but, you know, the, the young Mockingjay who showed up and helped to pick up that tune, and then now this here. Yeah, these moments of random beauty, a little bit. Um, Louise says, no huge cliffhanger in a sense. Yeah, well, we do have the two questions of how much, just how much is this medicine going to help PETA? Is he going to be like back on his feet? Is it going to be, you know, like that ointment that they sent Katniss for her burns? Is it going to be, you know, right back on his feet? Or is this going to take a while? Or is it just going to keep him, you know, alive and not really help him at all? You know, not, not not improve his condition, but just simply keep him alive. We don't know how much good it's going to do. How vulnerable is Katniss going to continue to be trying to take care of him? And then also, Katniss has been wounded. Maybe not terribly, but it, she caught a knife across the head. That's not nothing. The scalp bleeds quite a bit. Um, so, yeah, not, not our most serious cliffhanger, certainly, but not no cliffhanger. <laughs> There's a little bit of one, at least in my mind. That's where my mind was at the first reading of this. But uh, hey, you know, it, it is definitely like, Luis is absolutely right. It's definitely kind of a break from some of the really intense ones, you know. Um, and uh, that's good. That's a good sort of mark. Uh, you don't want to leave leave it on like the most crazy cliffhanger at every single chapter. Otherwise, um, frankly, the, you know, the, what do you say? Um, the, uh the pace ends up feeling strange. You don't feel like you get a break. Um, you don't feel like the pace is different. It also feels like this high adrenaline mush. Yeah, it would get old. Absolutely, Luis. Yeah, waiting a week is going to drive me up a wall, says Orly Rose. Well, don't worry. Yeah, we'll be back next week with some more for you. Um, if y'all want to find this stuff, you know where you can get it. You know where to find it. Uh, over on uh, Instagram. Uh, and Twitter is where I keep track of, uh, sort of, you know, what, what folks have shared about the show. Can y'all tell I'm like in a bit of a fluster tonight? There's no real reason for it other than I ate lunch like early today. And so I think I'm like running a little bit low. Um, <laughs> but no, uh, y'all might be able to tell I'm a bit flustered just a little bit. Memnite, thank you for conjuring the links. Um, yeah, go ahead and follow that link. Linktree slash sidecar stories, L I N K T R dot E E slash sidecar stories. Um, that is the one to follow. That's the one to share around with people. And, uh, I do appreciate everyone who has shared about the show. That is lovely. Um, and, uh, of course I would encourage you all to go check out our new podcast. Um, I'm going to be uploading the other episodes as well, but right now I'm really prioritizing this one. Um, uh, this new campaign on Wednesdays. Uh, the first episode is currently up on, uh, Spotify and those places that you find your uh, your 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 <laughs> your podcasts, you can find it under the title Side Cannons. 
all one word, etc. Um, and then uh, it's up on YouTube as well because there's some fun stuff. Um, I have been creating maps for it and uh, we've got some good sort of scene imagery as well. Uh, that is another one in which chat is going to be able to play, but unlike last season, unlike campaign one, uh, there are no um, uh, no bot commands to learn. I am so thankful to the people who participated in that bot and made it great, but um, it was just a little bit more of a, a little bit more of a barrier to entry than I wanted. Um, and so, yeah, I wanted people to just be able to get in there and just tell me what you want the character to do, and that's how it works. There we go, folks. Um, so, if you want to come play. If you want to come play a young ghost boy, uh, do let me know. And I will be playing uh, my young Lycan character. Um, they are a lot of fun, and uh, <laughs> we've, we've had a great first session. Truly one of my better episode ones of most of my projects. I think we had a great episode one of Hunger Games, and we had a fantastic episode one of Campaign 2, Night School at Vesperal Academy. So... I hope you all are excited. Uh, do let me know if you can't find it anywhere that you get your podcast, and I will see what I can do about it. Everyone, thank you so very much for joining me. I hope you have a fantastic week.